Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Finding the Frame. I have cinematographer Rafael Leva here to discuss his latest projects, his career, what it was like being born in Puerto Rico, coming to the United States, and really taking advantage of the situation and getting to that next step and becoming the cinematographer that he is today. He is an awesome filmmaker who's worked on a lot of amazing narrative projects, commercials, spanning with clients from Disney to Sony, Netflix, you name it. You've probably seen some of his work. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you yeah. for having me. Happy Absolutely. to be here. Very yeah, it's amazing to have you here. We were just talking about The Last of Us, Last of Us Part Two specifically, yeah. the emergence with games, how prevalent they are in society, and also just how amazing they are with the technology that's being introduced. What are your thoughts on that so far? I mean, honestly, LED wall technology, you know, um, has come so far in the last five years. It, it started 10 years ago, and I think it was Oblivion was probably mm -hmm. one of the first movies to really do, uh, you know, the volume. But it's incredible, man. We're like stepping into this new world where cinematographers are going to get hired. They're, act they're hiring actors already. You know, it's a new medium. Right. For sure. That's how I feel about it. I am obsessed with it. I love the merger of both gaming and interactive art form and filmmaking, a more passive art form. Still very interactive with your mind, but a lot of the technology from Unreal Engine, Unity, these game engines that are now being implemented into the filmmaking process and vice versa. We're seeing the gaming sector take all of these amazing core tenets of what filmmaking is and specifically what you and I were just talking about, lighting. Yeah. Why games are getting so emotional, so good, prestigious, similar to what we're seeing with some of the best films is the lighting techniques brought to cinematographers like yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the cinematography is everything, you know. I believe uh, I believe Spielberg said it first, uh, said it best. He said uh, this medium is about light and shadow. So, and and going back to our conversation, they finally found a way to relate li the proper light and shadow into video games, and using the real engine technology to make them extremely cinematic. 
I started playing Ghost of Tsushima last night. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally a, a cinematographer's dream. Like, think about the landscape, the production design. That beautiful backlit, the sunset light, the samurai, the petals the falling from the trees. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just beautiful. The horse, the whole thing, and you can easily see that as a storyboard for Braveheart or Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. You know? Yeah, and now we see all of these games being adapted into film projects, whether yeah. it be a TV series or a film. We had The Last of Us, yes. which has made great success. Mm -hmm. I love the video games, and to see it be able to be put into a live action platform and people to really resonate with the story it's incredible i mean there's so many games i know you've been going through resident evil again which is something you spend a lot of time with and also final fantasy which didn't they attempt to do final fantasy once is live action i'm not um, sure i don't think so i think they did like a like a 3d animation one but it yeah. wasn't that good but live action i don't think so i know that they tried akira did you know did you know about that? I did not. Yeah, no. Matthew Libatique was shooting it. And I think they they kind of they kind of pulled the plug. Do you know what happened or it just wasn't coming I, together? I believe it was a lack of technology. Yeah. And coming in together. And this is maybe 5 6 years ago, mm -hmm. but uh, a, a movie that size, again, right? Because we're we're adapting these like video games or comic books or uh, or Japanese animation in this case. Yeah. Manga into live action. It's almost like the storyboards already provided. The story's mm -hmm. already provided. It's how we like bring it into a, a re, you know a real yeah. adaptation <laughs> of storytelling. And um, you know, Akira, it's like go to Tokyo, shoot it on film, open wide, yeah, and 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 see what's up. Did you see the last John Wick? Oh yeah, chapter four, the yeah, one that just yeah, came yeah. out. Yeah, I saw it on Sunday. The Tokyo sequence. It was the best part of the film. That it's movie, bananas. John Wick is one of those few like film IPs that when it initially came out, I slept on it. Mm. And then I think the, the last one prior to this, chapter three, was coming out. I was like, all right, I'm going to watch these movies. You know, I'm just getting some good buzz. And my mind was blown. And I love blockbuster films, but a lot of times the IPs just run its course. And not to say anything negative about, say, like no. superhero films or a lot of that, but to see a world that's so intricately made and the craftsmanship's very refined, I'm like, wow, it's amazing to see filmmakers like them or Nolan tackling a high concept yeah. an assassin world and be able to execute it to a degree where it's also very commercial. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. consumable. Absolutely. People. You made me think of how they marketed Vengeance. Yeah. And the last time I saw something like that was really Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you can see the, the comparison in this chapter four mm -hmm. where there were some shots where the cinematographer and the director just went off with that whole shotgun yeah. scene. You know, it's just it's really, awesome. And, and that's coming from video games as well. Yeah. And I think there's a golden ratio when it comes to blockbuster films. If you can do something that's intellectually stimulating, but still extremely commercially viable, that's really hard to do. But when you pull it off, it reaps the highest reward. Oh, yeah. And I think The Last of Us is a great example. And I think about this with my writing friends. You know, why is The Last of Us so good? It takes a genre. But at the frame in its core is still an amazing character film. It's, and that's it studies, what it is. Yeah, it studies humanity. Yeah. You know, um, I always think of cinema reflects the state of society. Mm -hmm. where, where are we at? You know, and nostalgia and, and vengeance and all these themes are so powerful to the growth of, of, of personal life that you want to like carry or you get attached to. That's just gold. 
mm-hmm. and it's happening with the last of us and yeah. you care for her you care for him you care about his loss you care about what she wants in life and um I don't know. It's really neat that they really pulled it off well. Yeah. I'm excited to see where this merger continues to go. I think both industries are going to start learning a lot more and more from each other. The gaming industry is definitely going to become more prestigious. I soon enough, like game awards will be no different than the Oscars. I think in a lot of ways, you know, especially considering, you know, the uh, demographic that consumes Gen Z, those that are younger, they love games now. It's not a gender-specific like right. medium. When we were growing up, it was predominantly males, but now we're seeing so yeah. many like yeah. really prominent game developers that are both male, female. The audience is male, female. It's really exciting to see. It's so true how because it yeah, it's so true because now that I think about it, you compare uh, our generation where you were like, if you played a lot of video games, you were like introverted oh. or. Or like a nerd or, yeah, same, (laughs) like, you know, and everyone frustrated because I wouldn't go play sports. But I was like, dude, I I got like three games from Blockbuster. This is going to be an epic weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, But now cut to this generation. It's intellectual. You're constantly exercising your brain. You know, anyone anyone that tells me anything, I'm like, well, I'm just playing chess. You know, I'm just trying to figure (laughs) stuff out. It is interesting. I always have this funny thing because everyone calls themselves a nerd now, which I think is really funny because I remember being a kid reading comic books, reading manga, playing video games. And honestly, it didn't upset me. But like I would be picked on because I would be the kid that would come with my comic books in like the late 90s, early 2000s, like really be into it. But that wasn't cool. But now everyone reads manga. Everyone's into Neon Genesis. And I'm like, I why couldn't I have grown up in this time where it's like now that I would have been popular? Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Uh, The Batman did it the best. Oh, yeah. They brought you know, uh, I forgot what at what specific comic book. I bought it. I was in New Orleans and I was reading it. I didn't finish it, but it's amazing. It's about it's the night of the Halloween part one and part two. That's what the Batman was. But mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't know that when they watched the films, they're like, "Where is this story arc coming from?" Yeah. Boom! The comic book takes off. Yeah, the graphic novels for Batman are so good and yeah. i love how dark they are they're extremely tangible they're gritty i mean so yeah. much if you go to my bookshelf at home it's just lined with like manga and graphic novels really? i love like yeah i love what was your favorite comic book Ooh, you know i lean towards a lot more of like i love alan moore's graphic novels you know okay. one that's really good ethan hawk actually it's, i think it's called inde maybe i'm saying that right but it's a historical piece that follows apaches during when mexico was still a bigger part in the u.s oh, was wow. not as developed the west and it was all about the mexican apache wars that would happen in like california and texas and these areas and it's an extremely brutal but what's it called inde it's like i-n-d-e-h and Ethan Hawke wrote it and worked with another really popular illustrator. Really? Yeah, it's really good. And wow. it's a one-shot, so it's just one graphic novel. Right but, on. And I also really love, like, going to the... I'm really into manga, but Neon Genesis, Evangelion, I love those manga. I think Akira is really awesome. I love Battle Angel, which mm. is um, Alita. Mm. I think those are all super strong. But there's just so many great ones out there. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what you said earlier was so true? Like once they hit like the big ones, the big blockbuster ones, and they're so gratifying. It made me Mm -hmm. think of because of comic books. um, Iron Man changed the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, early Marvel. John Favreau walked in and just like slam dunked it. You know, the blueprint for superhero movies was just being developed, and for better or worse, Disney really figured it out. And I think you can 
easily see that obviously dc did some really great stuff with nolan and a lot of these filmmakers came in and did stuff but marvel really did figure out a formula that that does work oh yeah i mean so (laughs) there's so many yeah but let's get in a little bit about you i was doing some research read that you were born and raised in puerto rico before going to new york i'd love to just know about your background what it was like growing up in a different part of the world how that influenced you if at that age you really knew you wanted to be a filmmaker love to hear more about that yeah um i come from a very humble family in the south of puerto rico called in this town the city called ponce I had a beautiful childhood, man. I can't complain, to be honest with you. My parents are Cuban refugee, political refugees, um, political refugees from Cuba, and they ended up in Puerto Rico and establishing a Cuban-owned recipe bakery chain. And it takes off. And my parents' goal was always just trying to provide better for me and my siblings. So they put me in an American school since I was very young. And it was interesting because... A lot of people don't know, but Puerto Rico is a colony of the U.S. It's not really a country. We've never mm-hmm. had independence. So being a colony was interesting because I was, ex- I was, you know, um, exploited to uh, to Latin cultures and Caribbean Afro-Latino cultures, which is so beautiful, and like a very strong Latin background culture. At the same time, being part of the U.S., you know, there were certain things that I knew growing up uh, as a Latin uh, as a Latin person that we were kind of ahead of the game. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that my my childhood was beautiful and it was very much like a childhood you would spend in Puerto Rico, but it was very much Americanized as well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I was living in, in a country where I was really detached from the U.S. and U.S. culture. And no, actually it was completely the opposite. You know, um, like my, my weekends were all, I was a blockbuster kid. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad fished. He was a professional sports fisherman. So he caught like 800 pound blue marlins dude and i would (laughs) travel you know around the caribbean to his tournaments and stuff and i remember when i was like eight years old one time um i was just like playing with my batman skateboard in the house and my mom yelling like don't skate around inside the house blah blah blah. and they brought a new tv and that tv they hooked it up and it was a big deal and the whole family gathered around and we watched jaws and I, I saw Jaws, I guess because my dad's a fisherman, obviously, but I saw Jaws and I was really intrigued with how my family was reacting, especially my aunt. There was some type of curiosity uh, behind that of why is she reacting that way without seeing too much. And that really sparked this infatuation and, and, and you know, necessity and, and a drug, if you will, drug addiction to cinema. So... Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in Puerto Rico was a beautiful childhood. I was very tall from very, very young, um, but very much artsy inside. Very, I was trying to do sports to cover it up, but I, but I really wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a kid. And um, my best friend, he went to Gallatin in NYU. I really wanted to go to Tisch, but I couldn't afford it. So when I moved to the United States. I was like 20 years old. I think it was like September 1st, 2004. And I went and became the couch guy at my best friend's dorm, Palladium, on 14th and 3rd in NYU. And uh, I basically got a copy of the curriculum for for Film Directing 101. And Mm -hmm. in that curriculum, they had uh, Cinematography 101. And I think that the second or third day that I kind of was auditing classes, I uh, I 
you know, walked into cinematography and I learned that there's an artist such as a cinematographer and that there's an art such as cinematography. And that kind of clicked for me. And that's what it kind of sparked it, you know. And what about cinematography specifically captured your eye versus, say, a lot of people want to be a director? What about cinematography? Like, oh, you know, this might be a pathway for me. I think it has to do with the psychological and emotional, like, effect that it has particularly on me when Mm -hmm. it comes to the framing and the lighting coming together. It's almost like... Like sometimes I'll watch movies without dialogue. Like I'll put the movies in mute because you're you're kind of obligated to study the cinematography. And it was kind of it was kind of that, man. It was kind of like just like the shots. Yeah. You know, as obviously as you mature and you grow, you realize that it really to me in my in my opinion, the cinematographer's career is really as as good as your director, right? You mm-hmm. got to find a director to to grow with. And uh, then I started getting more mesmerized with the masters of blocking, you know, because blocking is everything. Yeah. For the composition. Composition is one of my favorite parts of cinematography. And I would agree with that. At the heart of every film, and I think all parts are at the end of the day very equal in the filmmaking process, but the cinematographer is the original role in filmmaking. And a lot of people don't yeah. realize that they were the scientists. They were the ones I that, love that you said that I always to build that. the cameras because yeah. there was no manufacturers until like the forties or yeah. something thirties. I could be wrong. Someone fact check me, but I know early on all of them came like they were the manufacturer of the camera. And those were the cinematographers when they would be on set. And for me, I would agree what has always interested me is not so much the feeling of the story, and that is a big part of it. I do get that emotional strength from it, but the way that a sequence of images can make me feel is more powerful than maybe some of the other elements in filmmaking. And I wouldn't, yeah, there's something about the science and the craftsmanship that cinematography brings that is intrinsically filmmaking. No, for sure. You know? I mean, you can't like, you can't watch Citizen Kane. And, and appreciate the photography. I mean, it was so ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And whoever studies cinematography or wants to be a cinematographer or is a DP is like you are just like left in awe because you know that's all meticulously done by a, by a person. Mm-hmm. And that's that's amazing. It's such a that's why I think being a cinematographer is such a gratifying job man. yeah it's just so cool in the evolutionary timeline of cinematography too there's a lot to it just from lights that were used yeah well we, we grow with first, technology yeah. right we grow yeah. with technology and and uh going back to our conversation earlier about celluloid it's almost like you know i like to paint in light on film if i can i would do it all the time but you have to grow with the technology in order to understand how you're going to record this acoustic mm-hmm. drum set yeah right you still need some digital tools and that's the way i've been gravitating throughout you know throughout the years even though i started with digital yeah yeah, yeah. and i think that's really awesome and going back to your time when you were living in new york city what were the next steps it seems like you're really trying to just get as much of that curriculum that you could out of nyu yeah and when did you start practicing filmmaking i think it happened in new york city when i picked up a camera and I started shooting rolls of film on set because my whole thing was, you know, okay, I can't keep crashing these these classes because you're going to get caught, which I did. And it was <laughs> weird, you know. Yeah. Um, you start 
you know, I would, I would, gosh, I would walk up and down Manhattan and, and look for a job. And if I saw trucks, I would have like a spiel. You yeah. Know, like, a, hi, my name is Rafael Leva. I was wondering if I could work for you for free. I'm just studying film, blah, blah, blah. It was like very short. On like film productions. You would oh, yeah. Like- I would walk up straight to the first AD or the key set PA. I knew that at least with those two titles, there was some way of me. An entry point. Yeah. Because at the time, and I think it's still the same way, but I would I would assume it's a much easier process. But to get into the camera department in New York City 15 years ago or 10 years ago was brutal because New York City is more of a smaller unionized uh, mm-hmm. industry. And so when I would work on these productions, I would take stills and kind of figure out the math of the cinematographer's camera and adapt it to my stills camera. And then I would just take these stills. And then at the end of the job, I would just, you know, give it back to the producers or whoever. Yeah. And just kind of like keep doing that until they realize, oh, my God, his let's look at this footage. And I remember this happened once at a commercial Someone was like, all right, let's look at this angle. Let's look at this footage. And someone, I think the agency, the agency producer or the, or the EP said something like, oh, those are not from the raw footage. That's just uh, Raphael. Um, that's just, you know, him and his photograph. Blah, blah, blah. And, he, and the guy was like flat out. The director was like literally, okay, that kid needs to be an operator. Oh, nice. So then that happened the next time, you know, they mm-hmm. came back to shoot there. And then I was an operator, you know. Was there a specific time or project where you executed it or even you were just in the middle of the process of making the film where you're like, okay, I can do this. You know, this is going to be the rest of my life. You know, dude, that's such a good question. Definitely not in New York because I just didn't get that far. Mm -hmm. So what was the transition? So I know ultimately you ended up in Los Angeles. What was the transition from New York to L.A. if that was the next stop? Man, it was really the writer's strike. The writer's strike in 2007, I saw a, a couple of my bosses just cry, you know, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And that writer's strike was what gave the, that was the genesis of reality TV, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I moved to LA and when I was in LA on my second day or third day here, I met a, a wonderful man who changed my life and he was the vice president of Panavision and I just had like a very deep chat with him, you know. And, uh, and like, I think like a couple months later I went to Panavision and he gave me a tour and then I got to shadow Shelly Johnson and he was shooting, uh, the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I saw, uh, I mean, I've never done drugs, but I, I couldn't identify hallucination. Right. So that was the first time I saw Academy Award winning special effects makeup because I saw Anthony Hopkins as a wolf on a stage, but he looked so real, dude. It was so like, what, you know? <laughs> Um, man, I think it had to do with probably me second unit DPing once for Paul Cameron on a Marlboro commercial. And talk about your relationship with Paul Cameron, because I saw you got to kind of be his mentee or of sorts. Yeah, I I, I just shadowed him for a long time Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot. You know, I think, I think. How did that come about? Um, (laughs) to be honest. Kind of same thing. I'm still hustling in L.A. and I'm working in a production company. And I wrote him a fan letter and I didn't hear at all for months. And then I finally hear back from him and he invites me out to breakfast. But the line producer in that production company happened to be his fiance at the time. So that was just like a weird life thing that kind of like put us together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think having a mentor is so important. Yeah. Especially at a specific 
part of your career. Like I would say stage two. Mm-hmm. You know, like my stage one was a bachelor's degree in life and finding love for cinematography and understanding how to do it. That was New York. You know, LA was like the master's degree of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you need to do. Blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, I think cutting my teeth in MOWs, that was the way to go. And, and, and having a mentor to reflect and send him all your work, you know, and, and getting feedback. That's very encouraging and inspiring. And talk about mentorships here at Filmmakers Academy. We kind of built our platform around the idea of mentorships and how important that is. Obviously, not everybody has the access or living in a geographical location where there is such a density of, you know, filmmakers like it is in Los Angeles. But what are some like pathways? Obviously, you did the more bold hustle route, but talk about some other ways you could potentially get a mentorship. Do you have any advice for filmmakers watching? Yeah, letters letters go a long way, mm-hmm. and and um, at the end of the day, whoever's super successful, they're there because they got help. Mm-hmm. So there's always people willing to help, and I think the the human approach, you know, it goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And how do you market? How did you market yourself back then to be able to catch someone's eyes? Is there anything that you said specifically you tried to represent yourself? Or was it really merely just authenticity and passion that you think got you through that door? I think a little bit of both because at the beginning, I was doing MOWs, which are movies, movies of the week, and they don't have that much of a budget. Mm-hmm. But to show a really good frame and elevate it with the little time you get. That's, I think what became my, yeah, my signature to, to climb up if you will. Yeah. So what was your next step? You got to shadow him for two years. How did you start to get a sustainable, like a sustainable career? What were your next steps with that? After that? I mean, I was shooting my stuff here in LA Mm -hmm. music videos, spec commercials. Um, I was just always shooting, but I think, when it really ha- when it really went down was when I got offered a lifetime film by a production company here, and again it only had like fourteen days of shoot, and the budget was like you know six hundred thousand or something, and I just you know did a good job. I just like went to work, was focused. That same film turned into a slate of three more films, mm-hmm. and those three more films came- became a slate of five more films. So all of a sudden. Like in 2014 and 2015, I'm like shooting like 10, 12 features a year, all MOWs, Lifetime, Sci-Fi Channel Network, or or Hallmarks. Mm -hmm. And then one day, one of those line producers, he was like, hey, I have this film. Where are you? And I remember being in Mississippi. I was shooting a a short film. And, um, And he's like, there's this director who's a studio picture director from Fox who wants to meet you. And he he directs a lot of TV. He and that was Dwight Little. So Dwight Little changed my life because again, right? Our our uh, our art form we're only as good as our directors. You know, you can. I've been in many positions where I shoot and light something really awesome and cinematic, but if if the story's not there or it doesn't land well, then you know it gets snipped or it gets tucked away, and you, no one sees your work. Mm-hmm. And um, Dwight Little changed my life, man. Dwight Little, he's a proper director, proper veteran, you know, um, killed it in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, shot countless episodes of Bones and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you name it, dude, right? And uh, we had an interview, 
and I went to the second round, and I went to the third round, and we shot an indie together, and it was a suspense crime thriller, thriller timepiece, my favorite, because I just love what shooting. What was it called? It's called Last Rampage, mm-hmm. and that was the movie that changed it for me. And where is that available? Uh, iTunes, Amazon. Mm-hmm. I think it got it got bought by Netflix, and then it somehow got bought by Amazon. Just went, yeah, you know. So, man, and that was such a great experience because I was able to do my job with a proper studio picture director, which changed the game completely for me. It kind of gave me a little, you know. Some clout. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love this one story. I love doing research about everyone in EBcoms. I know their work with you in some capacity is their PR, right? For yeah, you. yeah, they're my publicist. Team. Yeah, and they were talking about, which I think the general sentiment so far in your story is that hustle goes a long way and being bold yeah. in action and trying yeah. things that might not be as conventional, like just going up to someone and saying, hey, I want a job rather than, hey, I'm going to, you know, do the email, send a resume or whatever that looks like. But an awesome story that I heard, and I would love to know the truth behind this tale, is that when Steven Spielberg and Kaminsky were getting ready for a West Side Story, you really wanted to be second unit or something along those lines. So you put a lot of money into (laughs) doing a sequence to pitch that to them. Could you tell us what that was all about? Sure. Yeah, I... I came off a show uh, where I won't name the studio, and I was really bummed out that I wasn't invited to Final DI. Mm-hmm. Because that changes, you know, that's why I love shooting on film, because when you shoot on film, the cinematographer has way more control of the image. And in digital, sometimes people that are outside of your uh, power can dip in their, their spoon and, and it can look different. So. I had this experience with this show. It was a studio picture series, and we shot it in a specific way on set, and it came out differently on streaming. So I was a little bit bummed out about that. And at the same time, the same day I find out, I hear that Steven Spielberg and Janusz are going to do West Side Story. So I had my you know light bulb went off, and I remember calling my representation and telling them, hey, Steven Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski are going to do West Side Story. And I remember they were like, so, okay. And then, and I was like, well, what's to say due to the subject matter? Why don't, why couldn't they consider for second unit DP, you know, Hollywood's uh, Puerto Rican DP? And they were like, oh, wow, what a great angle. Why don't you write them a letter? So I wrote them a letter. I wrote Steven a letter. And I guess it was well received. And uh, my representation tells me like a month later, hey, you know, the letter was well received, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, well, what's next? And they're like, well, now you wait because they're in developing. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to wait. Obviously, I'm not going to wait because um, if you know me, I'm like super hustler. And I always want to I'm always thriving to work with the best or at least to work in a standard of quality that I feel, you know, happy with. And um, basically, I decided to sell my car and my lenses and my Nikon D850 at the time. And I gathered 10 G's. I gathered $10,000. And I canceled my Christmas vacation to Puerto Rico, flew to Dallas. A lot of people don't know this. This is a fun fact. I flew to Dallas because there was a private school in Dallas 
that was, um, I guess, sharing the original costumes of West Side Story in a warehouse. And my girlfriend at the time, her, she and her family were helping me out with the process. So we brought those costumes back. And I spent a weird New Year's Eve because all I could think of was, uh, you know, pulling this off. Because I finally, I finally saw the original film. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to see it because I always found it racist. And the way they portrayed Puerto Ricans to me was very offen- offensive. So I was just like, ah, I'm not going to watch this. But I finally watched it. It's a masterpiece. It's got beautiful, beautiful, like, frames. Just master compositions. And um, so I proceed and I shoot a lens test for Janusz and Steven. And I get, you know, again, my friend at the time, she was a really good friend with the choreographer of Dancing with the Stars. So they, they brought dancers that are in Dancers with the Stars. And that was like a really neat experience. Mm-hmm. Shot it on film, same film stock, used P-Vintage glass, can't go wrong, you know. And, uh, yeah, and we went to war for, like, a whole day. I used the money for, like, art department, insurance, and I think location. And what was the outcome? Dude, believe it or not, it was good. It was uh, his team reached out to me, you know. I don't know. know. I've never been asked. This is so cool because I'm finally, like, being cool about it and, like, (laughs) truly transparent. But his team... um, his right-hand producer and his team reached out, and they gave me, like, incredible, encouraging words. And, you know, and it was all I needed, you know. It yeah. was kind of, like, beautiful respect. I think respect is everything. Yeah. And there's a lack of it in our industry. It's, like, really aggressive out there. And I'm just, like, a, you know, like a big teddy bear trying to shoot cinematic, you know, yeah. shots uh, and cinematic pictures and and that really just came out of passion. Yeah, which I think that's beautiful. And I think the hard part with the current stage of filmmaking, and I think about this quite often, is that it's been an art form that's been around for so long. And it used to be celebrated just making a film because it was a feat. But now with the proliferation of streaming and the amount of content that's being made, we're not cognizant of one, the the body of work that's being amassed, which it's like amazing that we can even pull off all of this content so quickly, but also the people that are working on it. And I think the respect is dwindled just because we're not aware of it as much as we once were. It used to be a lot more respected by audiences because seeing a film, we're like, oh, wow, this is great. This is prestigious. The pristine is unfortunately wearing in some manners. And I think we're starting to see that fall back also on the craftsmen. Yeah, that's why, that's why film is back. Yeah. That's why a lot of film is being shot on film. Yeah. And I think that's why I love it the most too. Yeah. Because when people watch something that you, you captured in time, like a moment photochemically, that's so cool. Yeah. And, and you know that whoever is a filmmaker being tested, they're like, well, there's no keep rolling, you know? And, and I agree with you, man. That's really cool that you said that. Yeah. I think the appreciation of film, it's like anything when you get so much of something or it becomes so accessible, it starts to like wear at the veneer. It's so of it it's all. so saturated. Yeah, I mean, with social media and and our phones and like yeah. cinematic mode in the iPhones, kind of like mm-hmm. scary. Like yeah. it's good. Yeah, you can get some really great pictures out of it. Yeah, know? and everything's for better or worse. I always for love sure. to think of it like philosophically. What does it mean to add more? What does it mean to take away? So yeah, I think that's always an interesting discussion. Is what is the respect element? Where is that derived from? Is it because of scarcity? Is it because of appreciation that there's a select few? Does adding more people to it mean more quality? So and time. Yeah, and time. 
time is everything. Like, especially when you shoot film, mm -hmm. it's kind of like you're reminded of time. Yeah, let's talk about film. You have obviously a knack and interest of wanting to keep this medium around. We're right now in a climate where digital, it is a bit more cost effective, more people are used to it. The generations coming up don't quite have the access. Yeah. But what is your reasoning behind wanting to shoot more on film and really make this the medium of choice for yourself? You know, I think it just sums up to the fact that I love the voodoo of it, and I love that you are way more respected when you shoot film mm -hmm. than digital, and the discipline of it is so amazing to me as a nerd, as a as a cinephile, as someone that loves to do pictures correctly. It just sets the tone, like everyone from the crew to the to the actors from from front of the glass, behind the glass. Having film in the horizon, it's just kind of like, whoa, this is like the real deal. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's definitely changes the way you, first of all, it's the quickest way to shoot. You know, the way I do it is like, well, I don't have, we don't have to spend money on a DIT and, or hard drives or, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you cut your grip package in half because you don't need that much diffusion, you know? So there's like little things here and there, but, but in, in a nutshell, it's really because it, there's an emotional value to it when you capture stuff on film versus when you capture it in, in digital. Is there a time and a place where you would consider shooting digital? Do you look at it that way per project or do you really just love the quality of film and try to have that be something that you navigate into most stories? No, that's a great question. I'll go on the record and say that definitely depending on the project. Yeah. Because it's true. You know, you watch The Revenant that had to be shot on digital, mm -hmm. you know? Um, going back to The Last of Us, this is perfect. I would propose to be shot on film. I think that would have looked really good, and not to mirror what they did with The Walking Dead, but like Super 16, I think, could have looked really great on that, or just 2Perf 35 could have been really great. Something Or 3Perf, yeah. 3Perf. Yeah, uh, 3Perf pushed one stop looks amazing. That's kind of like, you know, like I think HBO's winning time in a way. Oh, yeah. Winning Time has a really good aesthetic. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> yeah. And, and, like, to me, as an audience member, I would be like, well, you have the video game, but then there's a visual contrast when you see the show. And well, it's shot you play on the film. game. It the unless you amazing. pull off the film emulation, the film emulation in the game is heavy. Yeah, it's yeah. like film. But I personally like that. I think the texture adds a tangibility. And I would almost go back to The Revenant. I have a really interesting philosophy. And I know I'm not the like unoriginal person to say this. But anything that's period, I always think it should almost be shot on film. Just yeah, because I man. like looking, because we're looking at, any photographs that maybe would have existed at that time or whatever is all through the lens of being captured on film rather than digital. Not that I think it needs to. Like, no. I think a great example, All Quiet on the Western Front, I thought the cinematography of that movie was great. I love but that I you're talking about like this. Yeah, yeah. It would have potentially had a larger connective tissue if it was shot on film. A thousand percent. And I don't think you would high have five. to change anything. Have you gotten a high five no. in the show? This I don't think one. so. High Actually, five. I maybe have gotten ones. I'm but, a huge fan of 45-degree shutter yeah. saving Pride Ryan recipe. Yeah. But you can only get that visceral, kinetic, emotional connection to the film. It was shot on film like Saving Pride Ryan. Yeah. And I think James Friend made all of the right choices. Oh, for imagine sure. Imagine if that was just captured on film. That's yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Like, props to James. Yeah. Killed it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's gorgeous. But I agree with you. Yeah. Totally. It, there's something that 
it's almost I have to have a larger suspension of belief if it's not shot on film and a period piece. That's just my personal philosophy. There is no right or wrong, but that's what I think about when I look at period pieces that are not shot on film. What is the point or why oh, are for we sure. emulating with digital? You know, so those are always some of the questions that I have. That's so crazy. I bring this up so many times with friends. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, did you love the all quiet? I'm like, yeah, no, it's amazing. But I I totally prefer the first 20 minutes mm-hmm. of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. It's just so in- incredible. Yeah. And there's something very, like the emotional value you get out of shooting on film, you can't replicate it in digital. Yeah. So when do you consider wanting to shoot digital? Is there anything specifically when yeah. it comes to choice of format that you like to consider? Well, first is the color palette. Mm-hmm. Because... That's, I think, what film is still superior on, you know, the reds in film. It's, like, so amazing and vivid. And also, like, the blacks in film, right? So I think it has to do with the color palette. It has to do with location, Mm -hmm. um, time. Is there anything that you like that the digital medium can do that film can't? Oh, yeah. I mean, the low-light capabilities of of digital, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like, the Sony Venice 2... I've been in I've been in situations where I know for a fact that I I look at the frame and I'm like if I was shooting 35 and I push the film two stops, it will not get as nearly as beautiful as right now, if to get all the light registration of the city in the background and all that stuff on a Sony Venice two, mm-hmm. or on the Alexa 35, yeah, or Alexa LF, you know. I like what we were talking about with the adoption of red technology, Fincher, and a lot of these amazing filmmakers who all started on film, but then transitioned to a digital medium and now really stand by red science in red digital cinema, specifically for those that are curious what I'm talking about. But what I love about Fincher and some of these other filmmakers and would love to know your perspective is when they take a digital medium, but they don't try to emulate film specifically, and they try to make it something else. Like Fincher's films minus Mank, which has some like emulation properties. Let's talk about like Gone Girl, mm-hmm. some of the, his other films, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. They have this almost hyper-realistic, but very like tangible and plastic, but not in the negative connotation no, of not plastic, where you're talking about that he uses Leicas a lot. He shoots on red, but everything has this like extremely tangible, not dreamlike quality that film inherently has. Yeah, it's like cinematic yeah. clean. Yeah, you know he's he's made for that, mm-hmm. and I think it's a rel- it's a question for a relative answer because it really depends on the author, right? Yeah, it depends on the filmmaker. Fincher's made for that, yeah. like absolutely. You know he um the way he sh- the way he directs for low light for the tip the types of stories he wants to tell, it's perfect. Yeah, you know like, um what's that series on Netflix? Um, Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Yeah. Which that's all, and he uses so many digital elements. I mean, if you look at the sets of Mindhunter, I thought a lot of it was shot on location, and then I find out that it's not. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But I guess my question ultimately is something that I personally like, and I rarely get people that agree with me on this, but I actually kind of stand by it. What I love when people use digital is in a way that it's not purely for emulation, and they try to do something that would be either extremely costly or just hard to pull off. Say like, and I'm not saying that it always works for the record, but like Peter Jackson or Ang Lee, when they shoot 48 frames or 120 frames, 
philosophically that stimulates me because it's progressing the film medium or or James Cameron who shoots high frame rate. Do I think it looks the best? No, but I don't think no, everything but, is always about if it's looking the best. I think that's a look very at the, modern yeah. way to look at things. But I love when I see filmmakers taking the digital capture medium and doing something that would not be suggested potentially oh, totally. for film. What are your thoughts on that? I think we got to push the barrier. Mm-hmm. You know, we always got to like strive for the best. What's the next frontier? Um, everyone you mentioned is a specific author. It's a specific filmmaker that are perfect for that medium. Yeah. You know, uh, really quick, going back to Fincher, he does, you know, hundreds of takes, right? You can do that in digital. You should not do that in film. Yeah. Avatar 2 looks so incredible and the textures it's just mind-blowing dude yeah and you know like how james cameron pushes that is is really incredible guillermo del toro too mm-hmm. you know so i think i think it depends on the author and and um and what they're gonna like deliver you know because right. i like spielberg hasn't done anything in digital um but there's a reason for that same thing for tarantino yeah and look at paul thomas anderson i don't think Paul Thomas Anderson movies can be shot on digital. They wouldn't have the same. Yeah, I mean, look at Phantom Thread. I think that's one there of my favorite, or my two favorite films, Phantom Thread, Inside Lewin Davis. Those two just carry. Inside Lewin Davis is probably. Oh no, that's the Coen Brothers. Sorry. Um, well, Phantom Thread. I'll just loop back to PTA. There's just something that's so beautiful about the look. Yeah. Of that film. And then I'll talk about Inside Lewin Davis because that film's also brilliant in the way that it looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, there's just something. The two mediums are great, and I think that's awesome. But I want to pivot to your latest project, Foster Ranch, which was also shot on film. Yeah. And I would love to give us a little overview about, about what that film is, what your intentions are, and what you're trying to do with it. Um, The Foster Ranch is a dissolution. It's a story about the dissolution of a family. On the night of July 7th, 1947, I personally, in the last couple of years, have developed a lot of sympathy and empathy for uh, animals and Mother Nature and everything that it's been going around. And I just kind of like feel uncomfortable in a weird way that humans are just like destroying everything. And um, and just thinking that we're not in a really good place, I wanted to do something that reflected on us. And um, the story takes place in July 7th, 1947, and how that correlates with today's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, problems. And, uh, yeah, it's sci-fi. Yeah. I love it. And it was an excuse to shoot 35-millimeter anamorphic, to be honest with you. Yeah. And what was the choice for going with the 35-millimeter anamorphic? Was there something that the story felt like it needed to embody that look? Yeah, it's just the, pow- the, the punch of it. Mm-hmm. It's, like, the most superior format, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You just It just cost a lot you know right you're shooting for perf you got to know exactly what you want because you're locked into a 239 aspect ratio you can't do anything you know yeah. but um yeah the foster ranch is great it's really crazy because we got hit by this gnarly storm and i'm so happy to to be here and tell you in front that i'm so <laughs> proud of finally of of what we were able to deliver right because um and then you know it's crazy I think about it now and, and seeing the way people reacted to the film and watching the film in the big screen, I would totally do it all over again because mm-hmm. it's priceless. And it's shot on film. It's just so cool. What were some of your inspirations for this film? Was there anything outside of the like real-world elements? What films really brought this to life? Oh, um, 
Interstellar, E.T. And I think mainly my my personal experiences in the last couple of years mm-hmm. of dealing with trauma and, and situations where you're pushed back because you just want to do a good job. So yeah. it's kind of come it's a it's a it's a love letter to my style of filmmaking and what I really, really love and what I really, really want to be doing. But in the heart and core of the Foster Ranch is is who we've become. Yeah. So it's kind of like a reflection of what I, you know, how I'm feeling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and talk about your film stock choices. What did you use? Obviously Kodak, but yeah. what stock did you use? And how do you consider which stock you want to use yeah. in terms of rating and when you want to use it? Yeah. Um, for the Foster Ranch, I used three different stocks. I used Ektachrome 35 millimeter. Man, that stock that that stock is so gorgeous. I mean, Euphoria has used it a lot mm-hmm. in uh, you know in um, HBO's Euphoria season two. They used it a lot in season two. I used Ektachrome for the flashbacks of a family, and then the rest was Vision three, fifty two thirteen and fifty two nineteen. So two hundred T and five hundred T, two hundred T for the exteriors because mm-hmm. it was very moody and cloudy, and that's my favorite stock. And are you using conversion filters and everything? No, or? no. Yeah. I shoot completely naked unless a polarizer or an NDs. And because of the technology where we're at now with Final DI, a lot of people don't know, which is what I wanted to tell you earlier, is that people are not talking about Scanity. Scanity changed the game. The only thing that Scanity is like available to, what to is the Scanity? big guns. Scanity is basically just like it sounds. It's just you shoot, you process and develop the film, and you... Don't go through Telecine, that's that technology. You just scan the film and you order the film log the way you want it. You want a 4K scan, film log, ProRes 444. You go, you cut to, to it and then when you give it to the colorist, boom, just like magic. You now, know? do you think that uh, for those that haven't gone through the Telecine process, do you think that's removing what was once a really valuable like role some telecine artists were amazing can you still get that same quality of someone that was really talented at being able to manipulate the colors in real time i think you have more control now no i think so i think so i think obviously developing and 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 digitizing with three printing lights is super cool but i think that the way to go now is just shoot film you scan it you you edit and then you just final di it yeah and it looks incredible yeah you know so how does that retain your DP? Because it seems like you're getting closer to how the digital pipeline might be in a sense, being able to get a log image out of film, right? That's essentially what's happening. So how do you, when shooting a project like Foster Ranch, which obviously you have creative control, but let's say you're working on a bigger budget where there's an executive, a producer, people mm-hmm. overseeing. If you were to shoot film and do that process, can you still retain your look? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, one hundred percent, because you're shooting it for the, yeah, for the negative. You know, yeah, so the there's scan. still like a parameter that's baked into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The scanity gives you what you shot as a DP. I got you. If you're under, you're you're dead. You're not gonna have information in the in the log. Does most uh, processing houses have this technology? Obviously, Photocam. Unfortunately, but... no, man. Yeah. Photocam in LA is the best place in mm-hmm. the in the planet. It really is, I think. Um, and then New York. New York is second. Yeah, what is it? Is I it Kodak? It, in no, Kodak I think Lab it's... Um, it's either Cinelab or Technicolor. I forgot mm. who it is. I don't think it's Technicolor. I don't think Technicolor does any processing anymore. Okay. It's someone else yeah. that they bought 
yeah. or something. Like, I think, yeah, I know Kodak bought a lab in Brooklyn that I yeah. believe was once Technicolor. Okay. Yeah. It's it's across the water yeah. on the Brooklyn side. Yeah. You know, and they done Secession. Same thing. The biggest Emmy Award winning TV shows are being shot on film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a resurgence. You see a lot of filmmakers, especially directors and mm-hmm. DPs, of course, advocating for this medium, especially in single camera coverage shows. But, but then you have things like Winning Time, which there's so many cameras, but right. still, and they're doing multi-format on that. But people love the vessel of what multi-format using older formats brings to a show or a film whatever it might be yeah it's because we're saturated Mm -hmm. everyone has a phone yeah you know everyone can get a a digital camera so when they see an image shot on film it has like a bigger punch have you noticed that shooting on film has helped progress your career in any manner just being able to have that skill set in your tool belt um I love it, and I love it to the point where, like, I'm okay with mastering it. And, yeah, it's another Mm -hmm. tool in my belt, you know? Does it help you get jobs in any way or not as of yet? I don't think as of yet because everyone that loves it or loves the work or or wants that type of quality, when they are hit with the finance side of it, Mm -hmm. they don't know how to deal with it, which I think it's important to educate the young upcoming producers about it you know yeah i think one of the most important things that has always helped me as a filmmaker and understand film is the importance and i'm not a dp to any stretch of the imagination but as a director a shooting ratio i think is really important it can still actually be brought over to a degree to digital Mm -hmm. and understanding on how to like be conservative in takes. And I don't even think it's bad to shoot high takes, but when you're on film, just being able to understand the shooting ratio, I think that's such a good concept to just always have in your mind. Because I mean, hard drive space is still similar in a sense, not to the degree of film. Well, the, the, the film runs and it's money. Yeah. So it's almost like you really have to know what you want before you say action. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it separates the men from the boys or, or girls from the women. Yeah, um, it's just superior. It's just the way you adapt to it and what you're shooting, like you said. Yeah, a timepiece, absolutely film it. Do you have any rules for exposure or insight that you could give to that? Yeah, totally. Um, You know, because of the latitude and uh, DITs and LUTs and final DI in digital, you can underexpose by one stop and and you lift it and it looks gorgeous. It's mostly the recipe to to dps out there because um you can expose to your highlights and lift you know that's in that's in digital right when it comes to film my best advice for anyone out there listening to shoot on film is whatever you're reading on your on your key light if it's a if it's a four f-stop just open up to a two eight no matter what because the reality is the way that film retains highlights is far superior than digital. So mm-hmm. it's it's reverse the way you capture. Yeah. That's interesting. And yeah. in terms of when you roll out on set, what is in your package outside of camera? Is there a certain light fixtures or tools that you always like to have at your disposal for each project? Well, I mean... Lightgear changed the game, mm-hmm. and cream sources changed the game in sky panels. I mean, you know, in Asteros. Like, the way, it, the way it all changed five years ago just kind of set us up for the next, like, 20 years. 
on Foster Ranch, did you use any hard sources or tungsten fixtures or yeah. was it a lot of LED? No, I love I love old school tungsten. Yeah. I, I really do. Like I had twenty Ks, T twelves, you name it. You know. <laughs> I had two condors with eighteen Ks each and you know, we got hit by that big storm. So unfortunately half of the show they needed to come down for safety. Yeah. yeah. Was this a Panavision project? Were you shooting on no. Millennium or did you go Aericam? No, I when I when I shoot film it's either Panavision Millennium XL2, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. Unfortunately, they were um, super swamped with work, and I really wanted to shoot the picture on E series. C and E series are like my favorite anamorphics, but I went with my backup plan. Um, so there's nothing wrong with an Airy Cam LT yeah. and and uh, Cook anamorphics. Is that what you ended up shooting the yeah, project on? Yeah. That's awesome. Did you do, I haven't had the chance to see it and I know you sent the first act, but what was some of the compositions camera movement like? Was it handheld? Did you do a lot of steady cam sticks? No handheld, mostly studio, mm-hmm. dolly and uh, steady cam and crane. Yeah. Everything meticulously composed and blocked for what's best for camera and, and you know, for the actors. As the DP, do you thankfully you got to direct and DP this one, so you didn't yeah. really have to have that communication. But that when you fun. go into a project, and for this, we'll use this as an example. Do you kind of create any type of rules of engagement, or let's say like these characters, we always want to capture them in a single. Is there anything that you try to philosophize before going into a shoot? Um, I think before the shoot, I just come, I just become very familiar with the psychology of each of the actors Mm -hmm. and who they are as people and who are they going to deliver as a, as a character and just be myself in a personable way. So they feel like they are in a safe place with me, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, prep is everything to me. So the more I can block the better because I'll really go for that. Yeah. When you, the foster ranch, unfortunately we, we, we got hit so hard that we, we didn't finish our, last three or four days of shoot so when you watch it that's all done in six hours because we were losing a kid at midnight and it's and if it wasn't for the blocking and all the rehearsals that would have never happened yeah you know you also want to catch the lightning in the bottle Mm -hmm. so it really depends it's kind of depends on how much days of shoot you have and how much money you have in, in you know as contingency yeah but I think it's really my approach as a person, as Raphael, hanging out with my actors and, you know, becoming personable and, and getting to know them. Yeah, that's really awesome. And I would love to hear more about the process of being the director DP. We're seeing a lot of filmmakers taking that on. Soderbergh is one of maybe the most synonymous to yeah. do that. Did you like that process? And... What was that like? Were you really relying on your gaffer? What was it like building the team around you to be able to pull this off, being in that position? You know, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, it's very scary to me because it's almost like I don't know if I'm becoming a director or maybe I am or I know I am, but it's kind of weird because of how the politics and how everything works in the industry. Yeah, it's kind so of frowned upon in some it's, ways, it's unless weird. you can pull it off and show that you're capable. Yeah, and it, <laughs> yeah, and it's weird too, because per, like for me, it's like, man, did I just threw 10 years down the drain and now you know, you're stepping into a different light where like it's so different, right? I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it because, well, first, I have to see it before I shoot it. 
Mm-hmm. I'll never, ever, ever, ever direct something that I'm DPing that I don't see it. I really have to see it. And I if I can see it, then then I'll nail it. Um, as far as like working with my key grip and my gaffer and, and the lighting side, same thing. I won't approach them until I really know what I want. And since I can go scout on my own, it's like scouting with my own director. So in a weird way, it's kind of like I hire myself. Yeah. So I have this whole mentality to it. And, it, and, and as soon as I know that the production design is there, then I go into my lighting and the approach and the cinematography of it. And what the cinematography will help for me to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Once I'm there in step four, then I dive in straight into tweaking and casting. Because yeah. casting is so, casting can break it or make it. Mm-hmm. It really can. Like, and, and as soon as I'm in step five, then I'm very, yeah. very relaxed. Because as a DP, like, even if my gaffer, something happens with my gaffer, something happens with the key grip, you should know how to light a scene regardless. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Because you're directing DPing. You, mm-hmm. you, you got to do both well. Yeah. I feel I would feel very embarrassed if I did one half-assed. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be mm-hmm. hard. Obviously, you see PTA or like Kubrick in his last film. They had a lighting camera person that yeah. kind of fits into that role that's not slotted to be the DP, but understands what the DP would need to do if, yeah. if the director gets too busy or like... You need I, to articulate yeah. your light direction too. Yeah. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. So what are the next steps with Foster Ranch? Um, it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, as of Monday, it kind of goes out to all the studios. So, so and right now you were saying it's kind of packaged as a pilot correct, proof of yeah. concept to hopefully become a series. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like a modern X-Files, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think there could be a lot of stories you just take a bunch of writers and put them in a in a room and mm-hmm. watch Asian Aliens. You'll come out with like seasons, you know. And uh, if you can put the the audience in the front row seat of that, with empathy towards climate change and human values and animals, oh my god, you know, I think it could be groundbreaking television. What I've loved about your story and the information that you've provided over this conversation is it seems like you're all about taking the first step in doing it yourself rather than trying to lean on other people in your bold approach of always hustling from the very get-go. You wanted to go to NYU, couldn't do that, so I'm just going to sit in on a class to being able to get Paul Cameron to have kind of be the mentee, mentor situation to then Spielberg and now this. It seems like that's a really great approach that a lot of filmmakers that want to be in your shoes that I think should consider taking it's if it's not happening somewhere else, you just got to do it. You got to figure out how to do it, whether that means sell your car or whatever else you got to just kind of like put your head first in this. Right. Yeah. I mean, just how bad do you want to do this? Yeah. I mean, do you want to be a filmmaker or do you just, you know, I don't know. I've always been like, I can't sit and just wait for the phone to ring. Yeah. So if I like between jobs and I finish like a really awesome project and then I, you know, it's like seven days go by, 10 days go by and, and the light bulb goes off, I'm going to find a way to shoot it. Yeah. Like hands down two weeks later, I'm shooting that. And I thought about it at midnight. <laughs> you know, you're just like, can't sleep. Eh, you're bored, you know, and I don't know. I, I, I'm a creator, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's yeah. great. I think that's really good advice. Some general questions. We always love talking about wellness and lifestyle. Filmmaking is such a hard craft in itself and just trying to keep the time to fill your cup outside of doing it. What do you do to just stay on top of yourself in life outside of being a filmmaker? That I need to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's an also an okay that question. That is a pill <laughs> I've never taken. I... Uh, Family and friends, man, and and I think you know Paul Cameron taught me this once, but it's uh it's the moments in your life that you live, and the experiences that you live, that really will mold you into the artist that you are, and it's so true, it really is. You could go through a slump, and you're like, gosh, you know, I want to be shooting this, and I want to want I don't want to wait for the phone to ring or. Or I want this type of representation, but I don't have the body of work. But then you, you want to go and shoot something on your own to to further in your career. And sometimes you just take a break and you have these life experiences. It just hones you and, be, and makes you stronger. And then you come mm -hmm. back and you execute it. Yeah. It's strange, you know. Yeah. In, in, in true, in, in all honesty, my career is a reflection of who I am and, and what I perceive. You yeah. Know? I think it's good. A lot of people sometimes forget that you have to live to also tell art yeah. and I think that's really important that's something that I've learned and I know a lot of my colleagues have learned you know I've always loved film and I've been entrenched in it I've consumed it but then I realized am I consuming too much without living life you and know there's a level of and emulation yeah you have to be cognizant of the emulation that comes about by seeing things in films and thinking that's your story rather than trying to tell your own story and i think that's really smart the advice of just slowing down taking in the world being who you are and if you can adapt that into your films i think you see that with all of the great filmmakers whether they're making movies that even are genre pieces you can tell a christopher nolan films a christopher nolan film yeah because his life's his lifestyle and his personality is very much embodied mm -hmm. even if it's about interstellar no he's i still agree embodying who he is as an intellectual in that product totally you know totally ah, it's so interesting because i i definitely um everything i want to shoot or the directors i want to shoot for or the project i want to achieve it's really coming from like the purest like form of passion yeah it's never been a gig for me in a way mm -hmm. you know obviously we need to make a living and you want to pay rent and, and provide for a family. But yeah, I think it's it's the if you stay true to your heart and what you want as a filmmaker, it will succeed. Mm -hmm. It'll it'll come out in a frame. You know? And what are some uh I guess some just bits of advice looking back at everything that really sticks with you right now and just going forward that you hope to accomplish? What are you telling yourself every day when things get hard? They're like, Okay, now I re I need to remember this. Oh, um, I don't know. I always treat like every problem is just an opportunity for a solution. So I just think of like war stories. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of Jaws. I think of Forrest Gump. I think of all these movies I grew up with that I love that I know it wasn't easy to execute. Mm -hmm. You know, look at look at George Lucas and the whole story behind how Star Wars was made and, and ILM. That's like so inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. That to me is like enough. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how blue collar the filmmaking process actually is. It's, it's like 2%, <laughs> uh, let's say, um, 
what is the word that I want to use? I'll just say luxury. I guess that's what we'll say. But then the rest of the 98% is very much like, I always tell my friends who ask me about film, they're like, what is it like? Is it really so like fabulous and all that stuff? I mean, I'm, everyone on set's practically a construction worker. Like, that's like really what it is. So <laughs> you're yeah. moving something, you're building something. It's a one big family. Yeah. You know, and all the artists and goes back to what I said earlier, like respect is everything. Mm-hmm. And if we could just be respectful to each other and, and achieve a film, dude, that's awesome. Right. You know. So what are some films that have really been inspiring you recently? Is anything just like got you head over heels? I really enjoyed Licorice Pizza mm -hmm. because of the tone of the film, the psychology of it. It's just the poetry behind it. It's just he, he always slam dunks it. Yeah. Um, he's a real auteur. I know people hate that, but he's really like an American auteur. It's just so good. <laughs> Um, PTA is awesome, man. Um, I recently saw Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I love. I love it too. A lot I, of people do not like that film. Top five films. I think My the top pacing in that film is great. And I don't know if you know the director series by Cameron Bell, really amazing, like film historian, filmmaker himself. Go on it, the director series.net, one of the best educational resources next to Filmmakers Academy. Uh, out there especially if you're a director but it talks about that period in fincher's life when he was making that film and his father just died mm. and that was like a lot of the reason why he wanted to tell that project i did not, do, I did not know and that. that's oh. why i maybe because i know that it carries more emotional weight but there's something that is so just uh like poetic about that film from the pacing to just the overall like length of it. It's a pretty lengthy film, but it has that like Tarkovsky effect where it kind of washes over you after yeah. a certain point and you have this weird like transcendence with the music yeah. and the cinematography and the and the costumes. I mean, such such a great film. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, Fincher's great. You old know, school, with, old school Tarantino too. Mm -hmm. I've been like dabbling in after the Foster Ranch because I feel like let me look into the early body of work of Tarantino, what he used to do or did with no money. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs will always be my favorite film. Of it's his. awesome. I think it's his best movie. Not to say I just rewatched yeah. it and I'm like, dude. So, so ahead of his game. It's a directorial showcase in a lot of yeah. ways. Amazing blocking. Cinematography simplistic, but it doesn't need Very to be Very simplistic. It, no, it, it, it would overshadow yeah. his dialogue mm -hmm. and the characters. You know, yeah. that's what's beautiful about uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You know, that's Pulp awesome. Fiction is like, it, you know, it has shots that you're like, all right, <laughs> That light could be more diffused. You yeah. Know? It's all good. But you're not even thinking about that. You're so sucked in on like the subtext of what could happen. 90s, I would say it's the 70s, obviously, one of the best decades of cinema. Yeah. Protagonists were super um, the zooms. problematic. That's the what zooms. my favorite part of it is. Just, you know, like, you know, intellectually, the cinematography was so tangible, refined. But I think 90s. And yeah. not a lot of people say it, but 90s is probably the second best decade for cinema, I think. I like that you said that because it has a, the 90s have a very particular glossy look. Yeah. And the 70s, obviously, it's very unique. Like yeah. The 70s is amazing. And I think just 
in terms of the like political backdrop of where the United States was. It mm. was like capitalism at its highest in a lot of ways, the way consumerism was. We went through the 80s, which was a really hard decade for people in the 90s, yeah. even though the political backdrop with the wars that were going on around the war, like the world and stuff, it just made for interesting art. And I would say it's one of the last like really brilliant decades in terms of a cultural export for the United States. So for mm. those that have not like studied 90s culture and 90s cinema, I always highly recommend. And that's why I like love 90s culture filmmakers. And that's why we're seeing people come back to it now, yeah. dressing 90s because oh, yeah. it was the last inventive decade. It was before the smartphone. Yeah. Literally the best decade. I loved it. Yeah. I remember, I remember the internet being new. I mean, PlayStation one, and the technology was N64. rudimentary. It was like you had a Walkman. Every yeah. piece, everything that you did was not in one device. It no. was like you carried a whole plethora of devices. Yeah, with you yeah, just yeah, to yeah, do yeah. Like the mall. Yeah. The, yeah, you would go to the mall. Oh my god, the mall is like where it went down. Yeah, it's that good. was like you know mm -hmm. you would go to Coachella FYE. for for yeah for a kid. <laughs> yeah, Fye. The amount of time I spent in that store just mm. like looking at shit. That's really Crazy. neat. Yeah. You know, the other day I watched, uh, I watched, um, I watched Duel. Have you seen Duel? By uh, Spielberg? Yeah. The first TV feature film. Bro, again, like so, so easy to produce, but like brilliant. Mm -hmm. And then that was from the early 70s, I think, or late 60s probably. But then I watched um, from the 90s, I watched Braveheart. Braveheart's amazing. Bro. I love that movie. A lot of people that... Braveheart is so good. A lot of people have not seen that. I mean, it's a Best Picture winner if you have not seen it. I mean, people just don't like Mel Gibson. Totally There's so understand, many things. But the movie is so good. Yeah. That's a childhood film where I used to watch that every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the best Christmas movie ever made. <laughs> ever. It's really it, good. It's truly home alone the scope of that movie is really well done too for real Mel gibson's a great director i mean say what you will about the guy of course but like his body of work of what he's actually done mine is hacksaw ridge i think that was I haven't a little seen rough, hacksaw ridge but i mean even in the passion of the christ remove the christian elements and like what mm -hmm. people think about religion that film is crazy in yeah. terms of craftsmanship and then obviously you have apocalypto which is another early digital film that will blow your mind but wow yeah and it's wow. visceral it's an it's, it's insane and he went did you know the backstory of it that's crazy going to the amazon they literally went down there and were there for weeks yeah shooting on the panavision genesis i know yeah crazy <laughs> just like a sony whatever it was it F was a sony f-35 f-35 yeah. yeah with a big ass recorder yeah Wow. Yeah, there's great stories. You can either, There's a lot of history that you can find online if you don't know about Apocalypse or have not seen it. Amazing film. Uh, really like ahead of its time, too, showing that type of culture. I feel oh like there God. wasn't a lot of people trying to do a film that was in a language like that, that talked about a culture like that, that really doesn't the have a lot of history. Of, of... Yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> Very brutal. Yeah, that, that mural is massive. Yeah, yeah, that's one that I forget about. I love the poster for Apocalypto, too. Yeah. I remember when that film was coming out, they were like, it's one of the bloodiest movies yet. And I was really? a kid, my dad would take me to see like rated R movies. Thank you, Dad. One of the best things <laughs> yes, I ever did. I would be like the kid that's like six years old. And they're like, are you sure your son should watch this? And he was like, yeah, whatever happens. Yeah, happens. it's all good. I, yeah. still, I still remember when I, when I saw Jurassic Park, again, going back to the 90s. Jurassic Park, the first one. Dude, 
that movie mm-hmm. from A to Z is just so well directed. Yeah. It's just and and uh in my my opinion, my favorite from Paul Thomas Anderson, Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. That movie is incredible. Have you seen Boogie Nights? Yeah. That movie's incredible. I've seen everything PTA's done. That movie's fan. incredible, dude. Yeah. You take the porn thing out, like you take it out of the table, it's still like such a remarkable yeah. film, man. Yeah, there's really, I can't think of a film that I don't I mean punk drunk punk drunk love is punk. Punch punch, punch yeah. Drunk Love and uh Magnolia, those ones are okay, but I really love even Inherent Vice I love and a lot of people yeah. don't like that film. Yeah, I know. That's great. Dude, There Will Be Blood. I remember yeah. watching There Will Be Blood when I moved to LA and we went to uh the Arclight Cinema Dome, which mm-hmm. I miss, which I think just yeah, got Arclight, bought yeah. or something. It's supposed to reopen, but who knows. I know. And um man, and watching that movie in the movie theater and the whole audience and everyone was like, What? Yeah. I remember <laughs> I remember the movie ended and the person next to me was like, That movie's gonna win best cinematography or something like that. And it did. Yeah. And Bob won. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Well, everyone, this was a little bit of Cinephile Corner. You can always get at me on Instagram if you <laughs> want to talk movies because I could talk movies all day. But, hey, this was an amazing time. Thank I really appreciate yeah. you coming this by. This was very cool. Yeah, giving your knowledge. We hope to have you back once Foster Ranch is done and out and it's a big series. We want to have you back to be able to talk about it more. Right? Awesome. Yeah. And I'll, you'll, you'll come to set. Yeah. Well, how can people keep up with you? I know you're on Instagram. What's your handles? Instagram's fine. Uh, Rafael Leva DP. Yeah. You're always posting cool stuff, cool images. Thanks, man. But let's see if anybody is watching and wants to ask you some questions. Dave, I'll turn it over to you. I know we have a little bit of time. Before they uh, yeah. caught up. So anybody out there in the uh, internet worlds, they're in a little bit of a delay. So you get your questions in. That's very um, cool. It's just live. Keep yeah. Going. It's just yeah, on it's our live. platform. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it's just live. It's yeah, the world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, I'm glad that you played The Last of Us Part 2. Love it. Definitely like messed me up. So Blew my mind. Yeah. I was in silence for like 20 minutes mm-hmm. and it's like three in the morning. <laughs> I remember house. when I concluded playing that game during the pandemic. That was the best piece of content that came out that year. There was like no movie, no book, like nothing that I yeah. consumed that made me feel the way that I felt after finishing that. Yeah, I had like a sense of loss. No, I know. There's the 2020. There's two industries that took off: Amazon and, and PlayStation. Yeah, gaming's crazy. Everybody's a gamer now, but I love it. I mean, that's like when I remember being a kid, and it was like hard to find people to game. Obviously, there's people that did, but now it's like everybody's a gamer. Everybody's what, what's ga- your favorite game? Ooh, I have so many favorite games. I, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater is one of my favorite. If you've played any Metal Gear Solid games, I, I love Kojima. Played, I had, I had a Metal Gear Solid 1 mm-hmm. on PS1, and I think I played Part 2. Yeah, 2 is really know, good, Sons of Liberty. Yeah, but I know that where I left off, it re, like the Metal Gear Solid um series like it truly evolutionized that was one of the first cinematic games because hideo kojima originally part three or part four all of them oh yeah yeah. really starting with part three part four really because that's That's what i heard it's like a movie more than it is a game oh really yeah they're like hours of cinematics in that it's crazy the game creator hideo kojima originally wanted to be a film director but then went into i believe computer science and then became a gamer. So if you play any of this stuff, even Death Stranding, they're practically movies. 
And that's like, he even says like on his Instagram, it's like my, not my body's like made up of 80% of movies. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. He's been getting a lot of recognition from yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Because he's taking all of these actors, Norman Reedus, he's getting directors, Guillermo del Toro, Nicholas Winding Refn. He has Margaret Qualley. And actor. he's bringing them to, all, to direct all to be in his projects, not really? to direct. He's the director, but they're actors. Like Death Stranding course, yeah. has all of them in there. Yeah. And the way he writes, I mean, it's like a movie. Oh, really? So, and then you'll see Neil Druckmann is like the other hand of it with The Last of Us. And obviously he was a hand in, um, what was it? Uncharted 4, which that also won like yeah. crazy awards. So you're going to see more. I know like Inuritu did that VR project. With Chivo. Yeah. The one from the... The border or something, mm-hmm. and Terrence Malick did one, a VR project. Well, if I, if I if I definitely get in the room for season two, I, I first thing I'm going to propose is it's uh, let's shoot it on film. I think it will have this really cool like contrast to I the think video that would game. Be good. And I think the cinematography could have probably been elevated in that. Yeah, dude. I, I think yeah. <laughs> no, a lot of people have mentioned that. You yeah. Know, um, and props to the filmmakers of season one. It's, fucking beautiful oh yeah it's a great yeah it's great she did an amazing job uh he did as well i can't remember their names i'm so sorry oh you're talking about the actors no um the dps oh yeah i'm not sure season one yeah yeah she did a phenomenal job i just think that personally i'm like man i play the game i watched i see the game and it's like if i want to bring it to live adaptation it shouldn't be digital Mm-hmm. you know it's just to have a contrast yeah i mean the game's so textured between the like particles that are in the world to the like film emulation that's put over the actual game yeah. now that there's no particulates in the world it makes sense to like it still retain the dust in all of the stuff that's in the game that makes it so great yeah it's also for textures yeah like, it just yeah it has textures the look 10 times it. better mm-hmm. especially to it's a show about texture it is because the world is aban- uh, the world's abandoned yeah you know how's it looking dave I was just waiting for you guys to wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Questions. Um, so the first question comes from Sander. He says, what's your opinion on LED lights? Um, my opinion on LED lights is they're great. You know, they, they saved a bunch of creative setups. You know, back in the day, you would have to get a little tweeny light, right? Or a dodo light, a dodo light, and um, hide it in a corner and now with led technology you can control everything wirelessly and you can program it for a specific lighting design and the more you add the more saturation the cooler it looks you know it's awesome yeah cool the next question we got comes uh from beth is there anything about the world of gaming that is affecting your work as dp wow that's a really cool question um I think it's raising the bar. I think it's right. I think the only thing is that uh, start understanding the volume. Yeah, and kind of just really looking at yourself and being like, all right, we got to jump back on it and raise the bar again. You know, because I think it's it's should push DPs to become better and better, even though it's designed from a video game software. Mm-hmm. It should inspire. Especially like when I was playing Last of Us and here and Ghost of Ghost of Tsushima, dude. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's great. It's things that help evolve you, evolve your perspective, really push you narratively. At the end of the day, it's all about telling the story. So it's yeah. an additional tool. And if it gets your skill set, honestly, I'll probably get you more jobs. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I mean, it's completely a mood board. It's like mm -hmm. uh, more inspiration. Last question I think we'll take to take us home. Kurt asks, Kurt's in the room with you guys. He's our camera operator. He always sneaks in a question via text. He says, uh, is the work that you're doing for the project for Foster Ranch changing your view on aliens? Awesome question. <laughs> uh, no, not really. I've always been very um, attracted to the wonders of the world and and the unspe unspeakable, you know, spaces and, and everything beyond the stars. That's just me naturally. But no, I'm pretty well I'm pretty well informed. I really believe in like there's a superior source of energy and we've been using oil, you know, for the last couple of decades because you're up against a trillion dollar oil corporation. And that's one of the subject matters that it's that is shown in the Foster Ranch. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I think uh, I think uh, I know what's up. <laughs> I believe in them. I I know I'm very informed about the subject matter, but yeah, I don't. It doesn't change any, anything. It's just kind of like me saying hello to them. It'd be cool if they reached out and be like, "Hey, we're gonna finance you." Yeah, we really like what you've been doing. Hey, who told you? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we appreciate your time. This has been a really awesome episode. Let's My definitely pleasure. stay in touch. And everybody, there is always more Finding the Frames coming your way. And please stay tuned for more. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members. And from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.